Welcome to Leap Year, a podcast about taking chances, making mistakes, and spending a year, or several, leaping into something new. I'm your host, Jess Caggio, and this week I speak with chef and podcaster Katie Osuna. Katie's food journey started in her Italian-American home, where food was at the center of everything. Those early experiences led to culinary school and her work at Manresa, the famed three Michelin star restaurant in Los Gatos, California. After several years in the kitchen, Katie stepped away and began exploring the stories of those who work in the industry. These stories come to life in her podcast, Copper and Heat, whose first season, Be a Girl, focused on issues of gender and fine dining and won the 2019 James Beard Media Award for Best Podcast. In our conversation, we talk about her experience in the kitchen, why she chose to leave, why she wanted to tell these food stories, and what food media needs to do to better support, highlight, and uplift the black and brown people who are often the foundation of kitchens, but rarely the stars. Yeah, I was connected to Manresa through culinary school because I went to International Culinary Center and Chef Kinch, who owns and operates Manresa, he's on the board or was on the board of ICC, closed now, (laughs) unfortunately. So he was on the board there. So they connected me to the CDC at the time, Mitch Leinhardt. And it was it was pretty easy to get a stage there because it was just, hey, I want to work here. And we had like a quick call and I did like a weekend trial basically to see if I really did want to do it. The trial was wild. It was a weekend of a special menu that they were doing. And I walked into the kitchen and it was unlike any other kitchen I'd ever been in before. <laughs> Because everything, everybody is silent and at their stations. And it's one of those places where um, you cut the tape instead of tearing the tape that you like label things with. And something I had a really hard time with was you have, you couldn't put metal dishes or like metal bowls or anything metal on the metal countertops because they didn't want them to scratch. So you had to always put like a viette or a towel down first. It was just little precise things that I was just like, this is a whole other world than what I'm used to. <laughs> extremely detailed. It's extremely like. detailed. And I was just like, oh, shit. Okay. And this was before I had actually graduated culinary school. So I was still very much, uh-oh. But I was like, okay, but I, I got to do it. Like I just had whatever thing in my brain that was, nope, you said you're going to do this. So you're going to do this. So after the trial, then I decided to do the stage. And I, so the stage was um, work for free for three months. And then I just had to keep telling them, I am interested in a job. I do really want to work here. So I ended up actually like working on one of the stations with one of the chef de parties. And I just, I don't know, it was just a lot of working really hard and trying to be like, yes, I'm here. I want to do this. And they didn't have a job when, when my stage was up. They had a full kitchen, but the CDC was like, well, if you really want to stick around, I think we'll have a job at some point. Do you want to work front of house? So I worked front of house, and that was a whole other bizarre experience because I had never done front of house before, and you have to be obviously on your game. You have to be able to explain everything. You have to know right? details of the menu that most people never have. At least my experience working in a kitchen, I very much like the back of the kitchen. I'm not a front of house person at all. I don't want to interact with customers. I don't want to know like everything that's happening with every dish. I just want to focus on my stuff. (laughs) 
I want to be left alone. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Damn it. I want to hide in the back. I don't wear makeup. I like being able to be like the grungy kitchen troll, honestly. So <laughs> that was another whole aspect of it that I was like, oh God, I have to be presentable every day. And like everything is choreographed in the front of house. Obviously a kitchen is like a dance where you're like uh, with your station partner and, and all that. You have to drop food in front of a customer a certain way and you have to say things a certain way and if they ask questions you have to be able to tell a story to explain it and it was just a lot to learn in I think I was in front of house for like a month and a half but it was great because it was like a whole other side of things that I didn't have exposure to so it was great anyway so I did that (laughs) and then eventually somebody in the kitchen left so then I could get back into the kitchen and it was wild. It was wild to be like on a station, owning my own station rather than a stage where it was like kind of somebody else's responsibility. And like I had some responsibilities, but it was their station. And then all of a sudden I was in charge of my own station. And I was like, I think that experiences, it feels like it's very layered because there is even a barrier to entry in the staging opportunity working for free, how were you able to support yourself in that time to even go that long without getting paid? Oh, yeah. That's something that at the time, I was kind of just like, if I want to work for free, I should be able to work for free. And somebody at my culinary school was, you should get paid for your work. Like, don't go work for free anywhere. Why would you do that? And I was like, I want to, I want to be able to go and work at the best restaurants. And this is how you have to do it. And it wasn't until kind of like after I don't know, probably a year into working that I was kind of like, who are the people that are staging at these restaurants? I could stage and work for free for three months because I had a partner that had a job that could support us in the Bay Area. (laughs) Yeah, I was I've definitely been thinking about that a lot more is like, okay, but who can actually do that? And that is, I mean, I think why fine dining is incredibly homogenous, white, straight dudes. (laughs) So transitioning to talk about your shift out of the kitchen and into food media. You started your podcast, Copper and Heat, where you explore the issues that many people face in the industry. And specifically, you're trying to amplify the voices of those who've often been silenced. What was that shift like? Why did you want to make it? Why was it the right time? I was just starting to question a lot of things. And I... I felt like I had gotten to the point at Manresa, like, okay, I had, I've done the thing. I have sufficiently worked here long enough to where like, I'm leaving now. It's not because I'm scared or it's not because I didn't do it right. Not any of those things. It's like, okay, I have officially done the thing. And I think it's just not for me. And I think there are all of these things within the restaurant industry that people aren't talking about that are preventing certain people from entering kitchens and preventing certain people from making it to the top. And so that's why my partner and I decided to start the podcast. Um, I was blogging a little bit about stuff. Just that was kind of like my therapy was just like journaling things. And sometimes I'd post it on my website and sometimes I'd just like word vomit on a page and just leave it on my computer. But my partner Ricardo is very into like sound design and music and all that. And so he decided like, oh, well, maybe we should do a podcast out of it. I think that would be really interesting. And so that's what we decided to do to just start having 
some conversations, some weird conversations around gender with some of my like coworkers and friends in the industry and see what would see what happens. That's how it started. Like what you're hearing? Go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from and give us five stars. Putting content together is hard work and your quick validation will be a boost to my ego and will bump this podcast up on the charts. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show. In your first season, which you won a James Beard Award for, it's called Be a Girl, you explore a lot of what's going on with women in the industry across different specialties and how there's so much toxic masculinity in the kitchens. And if those women want to advance, they have to either dim their light or be one of the guys or somehow adapt this like masculine persona in order to be successful. When you went into the season, what did you want to get out of it? And then when you were done with the season, what did you end up with? Yeah, I think that changed very drastically from the beginning when we actually finished it. I I think going into it, it was just an excuse for me to talk to people about something that I was really passionate about and interested in. And I just wanted to kind of start having those conversations and see what people would say. Because I, I just didn't hear a lot of people talking about it. Not to say that there weren't people doing this. Like, I think one of my favorite podcasts was Racist Sandwich. And like, they have been having those conversations. So, <laughs> and so good. Like, so, so yeah. good. It's not like we were like the first ones doing this. I'm like well aware of the fact that there were a lot of people that kind of laid the groundwork for it. And, but it's still not a mainstream conversation, right? And so I think as we started it right as Me Too was happening as well. And I think what I wanted to get out of it was a lot of people were talking about really overt um, misogyny and like sexual harassment in kitchens, which is awful and horrendous. But like I personally had never experienced anything like that in the kitchens that I had worked in, but there were a lot of other issues that people might not necessarily see as misogyny (laughs) or sexism. So that's where I started to be like, I want to have some more of these in-depth conversations with people to see like what they think about this. Men, women, both. By the end of the season, a lot of people had reached out and said like, oh, this is really helpful to me personally. Like I have not heard these kinds of stories. I have not heard this kind of conversation before. And then with the James Beard thing, it just kind of solidified everything. Oh, okay. So people actually are interested in, in this like all of these really complicated conversations and everything. So I think we went into it just thinking it was going to be like a hobby and a passion project, and it became something bigger than that. (laughs) And I think that's where the second season kind of came into play was after doing a lot of like reading and researching and learning for the first season, I was like, I don't want it to be about me anymore. (laughs) I don't want to talk about myself. I was fine for the first season when it was a passion project, but there are so many other stories that people aren't really talking about as much. I mean, that takes like a lot of reflection, which the podcast can provide a natural outlet for to figure out what you want to do from the first to the second. I'll share a little bit about my own experience with it. I went to work in a restaurant last year when I was trying to figure out like, do I want to be in pastry for real. You know, I started a pastry school and 
when I was applying, I got an interview at a restaurant in Oakland and the chef's name made me believe that, like I looked him up, I couldn't find a picture of him. I assumed he was white since Mm. most chefs are. And then when I got there, he was uh, black, Mexican and gay. And I was like, I've hit the jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) This will actually not be a terrible place to work. Just because I didn't even know who he was yet, right? I don't actually know him. I just had him sit down and I was like, this is fabulous. Like I can, I can do this. And, you know, obviously just every now everyone's talking about representation matters, et cetera, but it really does. Like having him be the person to do my interview and then being able to work with him completely changed my outlook on what was possible, what I wanted to do, how long I wanted to be there. It all changed. And then in the time we worked together, we worked together up until the pandemic started. And then mm-hmm. I was let go like lots of people have been. I just felt like this is such a great place to work. It was very hard. I was always tired. I didn't work full time because I cannot afford to. I have to pay for my house and all the other things. But I worked part time and a lot of time worked dinner service and on the weekends. And it was exhausting to like work my regular job, go to the kitchen, work at that job, work on Saturdays, have one day off. But it felt, I just felt a completely different experience, even though I had had this similar experiences to what I was hearing on your podcast in every other type of kitchen job I've had, like dealing with bunch of crazy men saying crazy Mm -hmm. stuff. Like I didn't have that as much at that restaurant, um, though other women who work there did and would tell me. And I realized I was kind of living in this pastry bubble where, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, you were talking about not liking pastry. I love pastry because for all the things that you don't like, I like that it's exact. (laughs) I like that it's about rules. I like that you need to follow rules (laughs) to get to a certain product. And if you don't follow them, it might blow up. And sometimes you don't follow them and it works out, but that's not often. There are some baseline things that you need to do. As I was there for longer and I was becoming friends with a lot of the servers, people who did not, it was only really me and two other people who worked pastry aside from the chef. I realized like, oh, I'm very much in a little bubble here. I'm in this protected bubble where he kind of sets the tone for what we're doing and I don't have to worry about anything being crazy because he's going to make sure it's okay. And then Mm -hmm. I would talk to some other servers who were telling me what it's like to work with the executive chef or the sous chef. And they had like horror stories, stuff I had not known had been going on for months. And I would find out as the person's getting fired. Mm -hmm. So that experience just made me think it really does matter who's in the positions of power because when you have and when you have people who are have already been undervalued for a very long time, who aren't in these positions of power, it changes who they select to work with them and the kind of environment they're going to choose to foster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that it's not just, I mean, it is who's in power, but also who is upholding those people in power, mm-hmm. choosing not to say anything or like question anything and that's something that like in kitchens obviously is yes chef that's what you're taught to do and I think what's really exciting about right now is people are questioning that and being like okay hold up this it doesn't have to be like this for a variety of reasons and there are a lot of chefs and owners who are trying to break that mold that is why (laughs) season two became kind of what it is is like there's a lot of people we're doing things differently and it doesn't have to be this way and we should be celebrating the people who are doing things 
differently. So you spend a lot of years, a lot of season two, hitting on what is different and a militaristic style of the kitchen that an environment that creates these like amazing results, but also at a really high cost, I think, to women, people of color, non-binary folks, all kinds of people who don't fit a white, cisgendered, straight male perspective. You've stated a lot of why that was important for you to do, but what were some of the surprises that you learned in in the interview process as you were... And I I say that because in listening to some of these interviews, it sounds like some of the people who are even fighting against the system are afraid. Sometimes they'll be like, they won't want to name themselves right away. I was listening to one episode from the chef who's in LA who was helping her on undocumented dishwasher and how she like, she was hesitant even to come out saying who she is, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's clear that as they are going up against these systems, they still have hesitancy about being as open about it. Yeah. Which I get, and that was something that was difficult to kind of navigate, is there are some people who are incredibly outspoken and don't give a shit (laughs) about, like, what the mainstream says about them. And then there are some people who are obviously still trying to grow their business or maintain their business or just make sure that, like, they can keep the lights on and they don't want to endanger that, which I get. And everything is incredibly complicated. And I think, I don't know that it was necessarily like a prize, but it was definitely something that I had to learn a lot more about and try and navigate. And I'm still really trying to learn more about how to have nuanced conversations and how to make sure that the people that I talk to feel like they're safe to have those nuanced conversations. Yeah. Because everybody's really afraid of cancel culture and getting called out and like losing their business, which I get. But unless we like have some of these conversations about undocumented, the undocumented workforce in restaurants, you know, there's so many people who, who are undocumented immigrants in restaurants and talking about tipping is incredibly complicated and everybody has a really strong opinion about it and gentrification was another one that we talked about and it's just they're all really complicated and nuanced and I don't want anybody to talk to us and feel like oh we've dragged them through the mud or or anything like that but I think it's really important to be critical of the systems that have been around for so long that have built this really inequitable restaurant environment that we have and that's What we were trying to explore with season two is just who are the people that profit off of off of restaurant work and who are the people that are kind of screwed basically by by restaurant work and what are the big forces at play right now. And all of that was obviously incredibly exacerbated by the pandemic. (laughs) So it was kind of just foreshadowing for everything that was going to happen in 2020. But yeah, it just became very clear and Again, maybe this wasn't necessarily a surprise, but it was definitely solidified that restaurants profit a certain kind of person, and that is usually a straight, cis, white male. And the people who are not benefiting from it are the folks that are, you know, working as dishwashers or prep cooks and 
servers in the Midwest or something like there's a lot of folks that don't benefit from this. Right now we're in what I'll call our 2020 awakening, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of what's happening in the industry at large. Mm -hmm. And it's happening in the physical kitchens, it's happening in food media and how the work in these kitchens is being covered, how the work outside of the kitchen, really the entire chain. I feel like there's a there's a push. It's not just the pandemic. It's also uh, all the protests that the, the Black Lives Matter protests that have happened and continue to happen. People posting black squares. When I look at your content, whether it's in your personal Instagram or podcast Instagram, it's really about, you've been, like I said before, you've been talking about these issues. You continue to talk about it. So it doesn't feel like it's just writing a certain moment, which is important for me and makes me less annoyed when I click on <laughs> to these <laughs> apps because I'm just like, oh, so someone who actually gets it, who's not pretending or saying like doing this because it's going to like work for their marketing plan, but it mm-hmm. actually believes that. How do you feel that food media can be more responsible about amplifying the necessary stories, covering them in a responsible way, and continuing to do so? I think what bothers me is that it's written about for a certain amount of time, a very mm-hmm. short amount of time. And then then we go back to you know regular programming that we all enjoy. And the regular mm-hmm. programming continues to be to white people. The regular programming of how to do a cacio pepe or your favorite pumpkin pie or things that it, it feels like things that belong or are part of Black culture, Filipino culture, Korean culture, Mexican culture, that is seasonal. And quote unquote, white culture isn't really white culture. It's just what everybody wants. It's just Doesn't culture. Everybody, right. It's just culture. Doesn't everybody want to, you know, learn how to make a chocolate chip cookie for the hundredth and fiftieth time? Like <laughs> that's still a thing or like having a, a recipe for the best burger filled with bacon and topped with blue cheese and all these other additives. Like what? It just, it, I don't understand why we're still making stories about burgers and beer, but we're not making stories about any type of West African food. You know what I'm saying? So so you've already made yourself responsible for naturally wanting to move in a direction that amplifies other people's stories. But what is the responsibility of food media at large in in this? How do we move forward in a different way that does not feel like it's just based on a certain time or a certain killing or a certain moment? Totally. Speaking of incredibly complicated and nuanced things that people don't know how to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) yeah I (laughs) my first reaction which I think a lot of people are saying right now is just burn it all down (laughs) yeah but not going to happen and there are a lot of people who are like calling for that and I think it's really 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 great that we have people who are yeah just fuck it all burn it all down from scratch and I think we need those people I think it's really important for people who are in those positions of power, who have a platform to, like you said, just be responsible and accountable to themselves and to their audiences and to really develop processes for themselves to continue to do that. I think really irritated me about all, just everything that's happening and how like food media has reacted to the protests and kind of a lot of the 
toxic culture call outs and whatnot is that they're just very reactionary. They're like, oh, I see this black square, I'm going to do this black square, or I see that this is happening. So I'm just going to like, we're going to write some stories about black restaurants and tell people to go support black restaurants, but don't do anything else. Oh, we'll hire a black woman to be the editor in chief, but not provide any support and continue to give the airtime to the white editors, food editors. Just basically calling out one FT right now. I know. I was like, are we going to say it? Are we going to say it? I didn't mean for it all to be about one FT, but it did end up. I mean, but they're a behemoth. They're a behemoth and they set the tone for so many things. It's funny because like I hadn't become a Bon Appetit fan until like, right when quarantine started. Like one of my friends is really, really into Bon Appetit and I had never really watched the videos. I didn't really look at their recipes very much. <laughs> it wasn't until quarantine where I was bored. I was like, oh, I'll start watching this. And then obviously everything went to shit. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, that all makes complete sense. I was questioning why Solo was the one doing all the work. <laughs> and Like never got any airtime because she's coming well in gone. as the, the helpful helper. Oh, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to temper chocolate. How how do we temper chocolate? If I, Sola having or teaching people how to temper chocolate multiple times on there, (laughs) how does this bitch not have 700 raises? I don't understand. Every single time you ask her to temper chocolate, she should get a bonus. Yeah. It's bullshit that the personalities, not just Bon Appetit, like this is, this is what I think food media tends to do is like glorify a certain person because of their personality because they're good on camera or whatever and so they glorify those people to the point where you know they're like the heroes of the industry and they don't check themselves and so when something comes out like all the stuff of Bon Appetit or whatever, like everything comes crashing down and they're like, well, why are we going through this right now? It's like, well, because you were never accountable to yourself or your readers and you never really answered to any of those things. You just built up this personality before the clicks. I think how food media gets out of this or like continues forward is that they have to start talking to people who are not the famous chefs, but they also have to create a a space that's actually safe for those people to come forward. That is exactly what I, how I have felt about this. Because even as I have tried to figure out how do I get into the spaces that I want to, what kind of work do I want to be doing next, whether even beyond starting this podcast to have those conversations, what has been difficult is like none of these places have like on the ground level internships that I would feel comfortable start. Actually, most of them don't even offer that. Mm -hmm. It feels like, it feels like that is achieved if you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who can help you get in the door. But they don't have programs built to encourage people of all backgrounds to come join their teams and to learn from the ground up how things work. Mm-hmm. It's just to hear, you know, if you know someone who's already has a toe in, maybe they can help you. But if you're just the average pastry assistant trying to figure out how you can like, you know, do some journalism work with them, there's no training to that degree. Totally. I don't think we would have gotten the attention that we did had I not worked at a three Michelin star, like famous restaurant. And I think that is kind of like we were already talking about is like the fact that I could stage for free, get into the restaurant, work there for a year and a half, two years, and then still had the opportunity and like the privilege to be able to work on this podcast 
because I have a partner who can afford to, you know, support me and what we're doing. Like all of that are layers of privilege that have gotten me to where I am right now. And if I had not done any of those things, like we definitely wouldn't have gotten the attention (laughs) and we would not have gotten the James Beard Award and would not be at the point that we are now. And so that's something that I'm still trying to like figure out as we move forward, how, how to actually use that to pass the mic, so to speak, like everybody's Mm -hmm. talking about right now, like how, now that we've gotten it to where we are and like, we're not, I mean, we're not making any money and we're not a sustainable venture by any means. We're not a bone empty and we don't have a huge platform. But the point is, I think that food media has to be really aware of the platforms that they do have. And that's something that I'm still trying to figure out as we move forward. How do we do this and have other people be able to share their stories without taking advantage of that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, because um, like, I, I do want it to be a safe space for people to share their experiences. Yeah, I don't want it to be like tokenizing folks. And I'm very aware of the fact that like there's three of us on our team. And it's all because like, it's me and my partner and then a friend that I've known since like forever. And so once we're starting to make money, hopefully, back on wood, I want to be able to like, actually bring in other people who have different experiences and can actually pay them for the work that they do. And that's, I think, the weird space that we're in right now is like, we're trying to figure out how to make money so that we can work on this <laughs> full time and actually get paid for it. But also, I want to be able to pay other people to do work and not ask for people to do things for free, Mm -hmm. which I don't like doing. And I think the people that do have the money to be able to pay people for their work should actually be paying people for their work. Right. Because this has kind of gone on a rant, like I told you I might. If you have gone through these layers and layers of privilege to get to where you are, you need to be able to share that in some way. And you need to build the systems and processes and hold yourself accountable, but also have that process and say, these are the steps I'm going to take so that people can, other people can hold you accountable. And I think that's what's kind of driven me nuts about all of this is people are like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better, but they don't, these are the things that I'm going to do to do better. Right. They don't say how. They just say, they just say they're sorry and that they will, but there's no follow up. Yeah. And therefore, no follow through because you don't necessarily see anything being different. One of the ways in which people, you and others can do that. I mean, what you're talking about is like trying to create a sustainable business that from the beginning is aware of the privilege, is aware of the uh, barriers to entry and how to change that from the ground up, which I think is really important and makes you a real ally instead of these fake ones I see (laughs) online. And we've talked about this outside of this space, obviously, but one of the ways I think that food media at large can do that is not just tokenizing people of color in one sphere, which is talk about how hard it is, you know, in your life to to act, to do X, Y, Z, or talk about Southern cooking, Southern black cooking, or talk about what it's like to be a black person in the kitchen. Like, I'm, there's no joy in that. Truly. I mean, honest, I mean, it's important to talk about the struggles. It's important to talk about the difficulties and talk about our own personal experiences, et cetera. That needs to be amplified more, but that is not 
the breadth of the black experience. Not the, that's not the breadth of the Mexican experience. It's not the breadth mm-hmm. of the Korean experience. Just talking about, you know, what spices you need to have in your, is not what an Indian cook wants to talk about. There are lots of different things that all kinds of people want to bring. And there is both joy and pain and everything in between. And that has to want to be celebrated as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's part of the problem. It's like, let's just see people of color as the struggle on the struggle bus. And that's what we're willing to talk about. And outside of that, sphere, we're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is something that that folks don't talk about. But yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. Well, now that you've made this big shift, you're at the point where you're really trying to question what your next move is in terms of making this a sustainable venture. What advice would you give to someone who's at the start of this? At the beginning, when they're they're thinking about making this change, they probably have an idea of what they want to do, but they're afraid of actually taking the leap. You have to be self-reflective. And I don't even know if that's a word. You have to self-reflect a lot. You have to just reflect. reflect. (laughs) And I think just knowing what the purpose is and who you want to align yourself to or not is really important. And consider that before starting your project. Because a lot of people get kind of sucked up into the, I need to figure out how to make money, or I need to figure out how to get more listeners, or I need to figure out how to get more clicks, etc, etc. And you can lose the message in that and that's something that obviously takes a lot of privilege as well right to be able to say like well I'm going to do this but I'm not going to do this that's going to make me money I have the privilege to be able to do that but if we're going to address the issues and kind of tear down the systems that exist we have to think outside of the box outside of the systems that currently exist and try and figure out ways that we can support each other and still make money while doing it but not in a way that's taking advantage of or tokenizing other people or yeah like all of those things I think is really important and it's something that I have to constantly check myself on (laughs) like it's going to be a constant thing but um I think that would be what I would say thanks for joining me for this conversation with Katie you can follow Katie on Instagram at K-R-O-S-U-N-A, that's O-S-U-N-A, and follow her podcast, Copper and Heat, at at Copper and Heat for updates on the upcoming third season. You can listen to the podcast on all podcast platforms, and for more information, visit copperandheat.com. Leap Year is a production of Leap Year Podcast, LLC, created, hosted, and produced by me, Jess Cadjo. editing by Jess Cadjo and LaCase Cousineau. Sound engineering by Brian Escobar. Music by Jess Cadjo and Matt Boyer. Podcast artwork by Anthony Conover. You can follow me on Instagram at at Jess Cadjo. That's J-E-S-S-E-K-A-D-J-O. All links and social handles for guests and collaborators are in the show notes. Thank you to my family and friends who've supported me in this endeavor. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.